Uh, What I've been tasked with today, though, is an unusual sermon. Uh, This is Advent, so we're supposed to be celebrating the coming of Jesus, both the first time he came and as we're anticipating his return. And that's what Advent's all about, right? This bundle of glory, this bundle of God's grace that has come to reveal the presence and the reality of God's grace and mercy to us. So what sermon topic does Jeff ask me to address? Uh, The reliability of the New Testament. Uh, (laughs) So... Yes, this is obviously a Baptist church. Uh, We're not liturgical at all. I know that you're in the middle of a series called the Battle for the Bible series. And Jeff has asked me to address the issue of the New Testament's reliability. Now, this is not a usual sermon for me. This is something I would normally do in the context of a classroom. So I'm going to warn you, that's an hour and 30 minutes. So if you have an appointment, don't see anybody leaving, so that's a good sign. Uh, If you have an appointment, you might want to take that into consideration. But what I want to do is I'm not going to be preaching a text to you. I'm not going to be uh, referring necessarily to multiple biblical passages. I'm not going to have points, uh, no alliteration, no poem at the end of the sermon. But what I want to do to you is lay out for you a case that I think I can make that the New Testament is not only a reliable document, but that you can trust it for history, for truth, and for the reality of who Jesus is. So my goal today is in the next 30 minutes or so, I'm really not going to take an hour and a half, so settle down, it's okay. You'll still be the Methodist to the buffet. It's going to be all right, I promise you. Um, <clears throat> or at least we'll try. Um, my, my goal today is to do this. I, I want to demonstrate for you why you can trust your Bible, all right? Buckle up, it's going to be fun. I'm going to focus primarily on the Gospels as historical narratives. Uh, my argument is quite simple. If these books, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are historically reliable witnesses, then what they say about Jesus is accurate. It's true. Number two, if what they say about Jesus is true, then the claims that Jesus makes himself, the claims in these books that Jesus makes about being the Son of God, about dying on a cross, about dying for our sins, about raising again on the third day, these statements are also true. And last, but certainly not least, if Jesus is the son of God, then everything he says in this book is true. And what he says about the rest of the Bible, what he says about the rest of God's revelation is also accurate and true. So if in the next 20 or 30 minutes I can prove to you the historical reliability of the New Testament, what I can prove to you is that everything in your New Testament, indeed everything in the 66 books of your Bible, are accurate, historical, reliable materials. I don't want anybody leaving here today without realizing that fact. Now, the Bible says many things about itself. In the New Testament, we have Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The author of Hebrews even goes so far to say, no one can get away from God because he has spoken in a word. All right, Second, uh, Second Timothy 3 says that all scripture is God-breathed, is inspired, and it's profitable for the people of God. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that we might live lives of righteousness. And Second Peter, Peter says this about the, the, the Bible, about the inspiration of the text, that none of it came by human initiation. That is, no person sat down in the history of the world and said, I'm going to write the Bible. All right? Paul didn't say, I'm going to write the Bible. Peter didn't say, I'm going to write the Bible. Moses didn't say he's going to write the Bible. This is a divine imperative that came upon these men. This is what the text says about itself. But how do we know that these things are true? 
The problem we have here is this is self-referential. That is, what the text says about itself is important, but only if the text itself is true. Texts say things all the time. You read the paper. You read the news online. You watch TV. Those are texts of sorts. They reveal all kinds of things. So how are we to judge the historical reliability of a text? How can we tell if a text is historically reliable? Well, let me differentiate between two things first. We are not going to prove anything today. The word proof or prove is a difficult word to accomplish when talking about historical reliability. Here's why. Proof requires observation and repetition. If we need hardcore scientific proof for historical reliability, then none of us in this room can testify to the Civil War being an accurate historical reality because we weren't there. If we have to have proof, most of us in this room, I would dare say, probably all of us in this room, can't even testify to World War II because it ended before many of us were even born. So what we're not looking for is not proof, not this dyed-in-the-wool scientific repetition observation proof. What we're looking for is evidence. And so what I want to do for you in the next 20 minutes or so is to present to you the evidence. Think of a court of law. In a court of law, you have two parties. The parties present evidence for their cases. The party with the most convincing evidence or the preponderance of evidence, depending on the type of, uh, of court ruling it is, that, that party wins the case because their evidence is more convincing. So we're going to look at evidence. Evidence is not proof. Remember that. It's simply a testimony. Whichever set of evidence is considered better should be accepted as the explanation of circumstances. Let me put it like this. My family is with me today. Um, when we lived in Waco, Texas, we were driving to Fort Worth one day to, to buy a new car. We'd found this car online. We were on our way to purchase the car. We were in our SUV when this uh, little sports car did not pay attention to our lights and did not stop when we stopped. It's kind of like the accident we observed coming in. That's why I was late, so I apologize. Uh, apparently, somebody stopped suddenly, and the person behind them did not stop as suddenly. Um, that's what happened to us. And this small sports car rammed into the rear end of my car jolted all of us. Uh, I jumped out of the vehicle to check on the, the person driving the car. It was a young lady. She was fine. Her car, on the other hand, was not. It was a crumpled mess. Uh, I looked at my SUV. It had a dent on the fender, and that was pretty much it. So when I sold the SUV for another one, they didn't even see the dent. So that's how little damage it did. Now, think about it like this. If we'd called the police to come, and the police had come and they'd examined that evidence, and they saw her car sitting there crumpled, and my car sitting there without damage, what is the likely conclusion they would draw? Maybe it'd be something like this. Well, he repeatedly threw his car in reverse and rammed into her little sports car until it was damaged to such a state that she couldn't drive it. Does that sound like a, a logical? No, you, you, yeah, you're all sitting on that's totally not logical, right? Because the logical explanation is someone ran into someone. That's obvious. Given the damage and the skid marks and the situation in traffic, the assumption is she ran into me, which is exactly what happened. I'll give another example. How will you prove to anyone, prove, mind you, remember that word prove, that you came to church today? You can say, well, I came to church that's a testimony. That's not a proof. You can say, well, I have a bulletin. See, here's the bulletin. It even has today's date on it. Well, you could have picked up a bulletin and not stayed. Well, I, I took notes, so I know what the pastor talked about. Well, you, you could have gotten notes from somebody else. You can't prove 
you were at church today, but you can stack evidence up that shows that you were here today. So what I want to do is look at evidence. In his book, The uh, Introduction to Research in English Literary History, Sanders, Dr. Sanders, sets forth three tests of reliability employed in general studies of history and literary criticism. Number one, bibliographical, the textual tradition from the original document to the copies and manuscripts and documents we possess today. Number two, internal evidence, what the document says about itself. We've already kind of addressed the internal evidence, so we won't be readdressing that today. Uh, number three, external evidence, how the document squares or aligns itself with facts, dates, persons from its contemporary world. It's um, important to note, by the way, that Dr. Sanders is a professor of military history, not theology. So his standard of proof, his standard of evidence, his standard of reliability is useful for us in religious circles because it's not, this is not necessarily a believer that came up with these. So what we want to do is see how the New Testament fits these tests. We've already talked about internal evidence, what the document claims for itself. What I want to do for the next few minutes is take you through the biographical evidence. This is a problem for us. Many Christians, many of you in this room, no doubt, believe this book to be the inspired word of God, inerrant and infallible in its original manuscripts. Right? Thank you for that, amen. Appreciate that. You could come to liberty. Uh, Because that's our doctoral statement, right? Uh, yeah, you have to believe that to teach at liberty. So, of course, I believe this. The problem is, what originals do I have? Right. The sad answer is, none. We don't have a single original copy autographed by Paul. <laughs> you know, I, Paul, wrote this. Here's my autograph. You know, like baseball cards. You can set, sign card. You can sell this. We don't have those. We also don't have uh, access to the originals of Moses' writings, the originals of the Gospels, the originals of the book of Revelation. We have none of the original manuscripts. And in fact, communication of this information took period over uh, a long stretch of time in some cases. And communication is not perfect. There can be mistakes that can creep in. Errors can be compounded by each successive generation. This leads skeptics to say, how can you possibly know that your Bible is accurate? All these years, all these changes, all these, these manuscripts, how can you know? It's kind of like the game Telephone you've ever played this game, right, where you whisper one uh, statement to one person, they pass it around the room until the last person restates the, the, the supposed statement, usually so outlandish and unbelievable that it's nothing like the original statement, right? This is what skeptics say. The manuscripts of the New Testament are like telephone. We can't really know what they say. The problem with this hypothetical situation is it's not true with regards to the nature of Scripture. There are two assumptions that underlie the skeptic's complaint. The first assumption is that the transmission of information is more or less linear. That is, one guy whispered to one guy who whispered to one guy who whispered to one guy who at the end blabbed it all and got it completely wrong. This is patently untrue. In the Bible's case, we have one letter that was written to one church. That church copied that letter multiple times to send it to other churches. So we have one copy into five copies, five copies into 25 copies, 25 copies into 100 copies, 100 copies into 500 copies. You see where I'm going with this? It's not telephone, ladies and gentlemen. It's manuscripts. The second false assumption is that all of it depends on oral transmission. Although there is oral transmission that ends up written down in the New Testament. Don't misunderstand me. There were oral teachings that ended up in our Bible. 
The fact is, our manuscript evidence, the bibliographical evidence that we have, is not dependent on oral transmission. It's dependent on people faithfully copying these things. Let me give this illustration. My grandmother was a great cook. Granny Purser had made the best dinner rolls. Unfortunately, she didn't believe in recipes. So nobody could ever make those rolls ever again. The recipe died with her. My mom once asked her, Granny, how do you make these rolls? She said, well, you take a little pinch of this, and you work it into this much dough, and then you, you feel it until it feels like this, and you add this, and you add that, and then you cut it. Well, my mom could never figure out the right feel, apparently. Um, when she tried it, they were like hockey pucks. So uh, my mom's a great cook, by the way. She just couldn't make Granny's rolls, all right? But let's say Granny decided these rolls were worth sharing. And so she got out her pencil and paper. Granny lived before the technological era, so teenagers forget about smartphones, copiers, or even email. Didn't exist. Let's say Granny Purser got out a piece of paper. She wrote down four cups of this, two teaspoons of that, a tablespoon of this. Mix it this way. Blend it this way. Cut it this way. Cook it at this temperature for this amount of time. And then she used that recipe to make rolls after rolls after rolls after rolls. You can tell she blessed her grandson a lot, right? Very good rolls. And then she realized one day, these are the best rolls I've ever made. So I'm going to share my recipe. So she gets out five sheets of paper. She writes down the recipe exactly as she had it on there. She passes those recipes out to her best friends. Here, I want you to have these rolls for your next Thanksgiving meal. I know you just had Thanksgiving, so this is really helpful, right? Plus, you're looking forward to lunch. So rolls, right? So she passes these out. And everybody, these are the best rolls ever. So her five friends say, I'm going to share this with my family members. And they start making copies of the recipe. And they pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. Before you know, you got 35, 40, 50 copies of this recipe floating around. One day, Granny gets up, she decides to make her rolls for her family, and she finds her recipe has disappeared. She can't find the recipe. The dog ate it, maybe, who knows, but it's gone. What does she do? How does she recover the original recipe? She calls her five friends up. Hey, got a copy of that recipe? Oh, let me look. Well, her five friends find out their recipes are missing too. What are we here going to do? Good news. We copied it. We gave it to other people. Before you know it, they've rounded up about 30 or so copies of this recipe sitting on the dining room table in Granny's house. Now, what do you think they find when they look at these recipes? They find that some people hand copied them incorrectly. That is, they misspelled a word. Or maybe they inverted uh, some instructions. Instead of uh, chopping first, they put chopping second, right? Maybe they got the temperature a little bit off on the cooking gauge, right? So you've got 30 or so recipes, five or six of which have mistakes on them. What are the odds that Granny Purser can now discover her original roll recipe? Pretty good. She's got 25 good recipes, four or five not so good recipes. They can weed through them and decide which ones are mistakes and which ones are accurate, right? This is what we call in biblical studies textual criticism, and this is where we are in modern New Testament studies. We have roughly 5,000 plus manuscripts of the New Testament. Five, not 50, not 100, 5,000. Okay? We have 5,000. If Granny can reproduce her recipe from 30, we could probably reproduce something of the original documents from 5,000. This is my point. Now, what I want to do 
is walk you through some basic thoughts about this topic. Again, we're concerned with historical reliability. We can't offer proof, so we want to look at the evidence. The four books of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are ancient manuscripts. We don't have, unfortunately, 5,000 copies of them. But we do have dozens, if not hundreds, of copies of them. In fact, some of the oldest manuscript copies we have of the Gospels date to the 3rd century. That's 250 AD. That's roughly 200 years after Jesus lived and died. These are copies. These are copies. So there are two ways we can look at these dozen or hundred or so manuscripts and determine reliability. One, we can look at their age, that is, how old are they, and their distribution, where were they used. But we can also look at their authors. I want to look at both today real quick before we get to the external evidence. But before we do that, let's do a quick comparison. Anybody in here ever heard of a thing called the Roman Empire? You can raise your hand if you want to. It's okay to be interactive in church. Look at that. Some of you are awake. Well, done. Good job. Uh, The Roman Empire existed for over a thousand years. It's well attested in historical documents. Multiple Roman emperors. In fact, uh, uh, Tacitus wrote and lived during the reign of several Roman uh, emperors, about two weeks, basically. Um, If you know anything about Roman history, you know that's probably more true than we like to admit. But he lived through the lives of many of them and wrote histories of them. Tacitus and a guy named Pliny the Younger and a guy named Suetonius Suetonius wrote volumes of Roman history. The most complete volume we have is one called the Gallic Wars by Tacitus. Our oldest copy dates to about AD 900. Now to put that in context, AD 900 is talking about wars that happened several hundred years before. So AD 900 would be seven, six hundred years removed from the actual wars. We have these Gallic Wars. It was originally a 30-volume set, of which we now have roughly 50, I'm sorry, 15 volumes in existence. So we have half of the history. Of the half of the history we have, we have, ready for this, 20 copies existing. 20. 20 copies. Now, when you read your history books, does anybody raise any doubt about the history of Rome? that Nero existed, Caligula existed, that Tiberius existed, that Augustus existed, Octavian, Vespasius, the rest of the nuts that we call Roman emperors. And if you haven't studied Roman Empire, trust me, some of them are Caligula, wanted to marry his sister, wanted his horse to be a senator. Come on. Even our government hasn't gotten that. Well, maybe. Anyway. uh, I said I wouldn't get into politics. We'll stop. The... These Roman materials are used regularly in history classes all over the world. And yet, in spite of the few number of them, nobody ever says, well, I don't know if we can trust Roman history. We only have 20 copies. And that Tacitus, can we trust him? What kind of guy was he? You never hear anybody say that. In fact, if you said that in a Roman history class, my guess is they would laugh you to scorn, as they say in the Bible. They would treat you with disrespect. Now, If we can study Roman history based on the witness of three or four guys of whom we have 20 or so manuscripts. By the way, Homer is the most attested to non-religious materials we have in the world. Homer. 
okay, from the ancient world. Homer, who wrote the Iliad, the Odyssey, Homer, the guy who wrote the rhetoric, Homer, that guy, okay. We have roughly 600 and so copies of Homer's materials. With 600 or so copies, we are able to supposedly reproduce 95% accuracy what Homer actually said. 600 copies, not 5,000, not 14,000 when you start adding in other languages that the Bible was translated into, not 300,000 small pieces that we found in other places. No, just 600 copies, 95%. So let's talk about the New Testament then. The manuscripts of the Gospels don't represent the history of an entire empire, thousand years or so, but rather three years in the life of a Jewish carpenter of the first century, a guy named Jesus. Three years, just three years, right? In fact, if you take what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all look at Jesus in a similar way. If you take the synoptic gospels, they only really cover one year of Jesus' life. John's gospel is the one that tells us that he may have ministered three years because there's several Passovers mentioned in John's gospel. So we have these four books that represent roughly one, uh, three years of the life of a Jewish carpenter. We actually have hundreds of copies of these manuscripts of the Gospels, not dozens, hundreds. We have one fragment of a Gospel manuscript that dates to the A.D. 130. Put this in context. Jesus lived and breathed and died and resurrected in the mid-30s, 30 to 35, depends on who you ask. 130 would be roughly 100 years after Jesus. We have a copy of a manuscript from 100 years after Jesus has gone back to be with his father. It's called the John Rylus Papyrus. It's part of the Gospel of John. It was found in Egypt, Alexandria to be exact. Being found in Egypt tells me this manuscript had to have been copied in the first century in order for it to make its way to Alexandria, Egypt. So we can readily say John's Gospel was written sometime in the first century. Why am I saying all this? To make a point, the Gallic Wars, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Elder, Josephus, all wrote of events that happened hundreds of years before, and nobody questions their veracity. The gospel writers are writing of things that happened within their lifetime. Some of the gospel writers are actually eyewitnesses of these events. Matthew, John were both there. Mark is writing on behalf of Peter. Everybody remembers Peter, right? Also an eyewitness. Peter says in 2 Peter, we have seen these things. We were there on the mountain when we heard the Father say, this is my son, hear him. So we have eyewitness accounts. By AD 250, we have complete copies of all four Gospels as we have them in our current Bibles. All four Gospels by AD 250, roughly 200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have complete copies. Not just one copy, by the way. It's not like we have one Bible. Hang on to it. It's the only one we got. Don't let it get burnt, right? No, we have multiple copies. As far as the rest of the New Testament is concerned, we have, as I already noted, over 5,500 intact manuscripts. That's not counting fragments. That's not counting pieces. That's not counting older things that we haven't figured out yet. That's not even counting what we haven't discovered yet. Dan Wallace from Dallas Seminary is out there right now looking for manuscripts. He sends me emails all the time about discovering this manuscript of Mark and that manuscript of Philippians and this manuscript of that. And he's finding these manuscripts that date as old as three, five, four, seven hundred, eighteen hundred years ago. Amazing stuff. Compared to Roman history, The Gospels and other New Testament books have better distribution and better dating, right? Are we all in agreement? 
So if you look at Roman history and you can trust the Gallic Wars, Tacitus, then you can probably trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. More evidence, wider distribution, older manuscripts, closer to the original events. Okay? But then comes the question, the old telephone game. But what about the errors? Remember the um, recipe example? These errors can be overcome. We have multiple manuscripts to compare. We can look at these errors and see where mistakes may have been made in the, co- in the copying process. Given the sheer number of copies of the New Testament works, you'd expect some differences. 5,500. Now, I don't know how many of us are in this room today, but if we took the task to write out the Gospel of Matthew by hand, copying it from your favorite translation, and we were tasked with making 5,500 copies of it, Number one, you'd all leave church. Uh, <laughs> I'm not doing that. But number two, it'd probably take us a while to do this, even as many people we have in this room. What are the odds that somebody's going to put a period in the wrong place? What are the odds that somebody's going to transpose some letters, maybe leave a letter out, maybe abbreviate something because they get tired of writing, right? I think Tacitus, one guy I read for this sermon said that he thinks Tacitus died of hand cramps from writing so much, and you know, maybe that's what would happen to us. My point is simply this. The manuscripts of the New Testament are old enough and numerous enough to offer a promise of ascertaining the actual, real, original stuff. Have no fear. The English Bible you read, faithfully translated by scholars and men and women of God, so you can read it in English, is historically reliable. It has hundreds of years, thousands of manuscripts that support it. I mentioned earlier we have over 600 manuscripts of Homer. 600 compared to 5,000. You do the math. There are no doctrinally significant problems in the errors or mistakes or discrepancies we find in the New Testament manuscripts, by the way. Bart Ehrman, who's a skeptic, who doesn't believe Jesus is God, has stated on more than one occasion that based on the historical reliability of the Gospels, we cannot deny the existence of a man named Jesus who came from Nazareth. We can't deny that he had disciples. We can't deny that his teaching caused problems. We can't deny that he was, di- was killed and hung on a cross. What Bart Ehrman denies are the supernatural aspects of the story, that he rose again on the third day, that he claimed to be God, that he was the Messiah of Israel. Bart disagrees with all that. But Bart Ehrman, a skeptic, non-Christian historian, admits... The story is historically true. I want you to hear that. There's not a major, not a major scholar I know of that denies the existence of Jesus as a historical figure. Had a friend online the other day, I have an atheist friend in Texas, who actually made the comment, well, it's it's suspicious if Jesus even really lived. And I said, are you really that stupid? And and he said to me, well, Bart Ehrman says that. And I said, well, I actually know Bart Ehrman. Would you like me to call him up and ask him? Because the last time I read his books, he said the exact opposite. That Jesus existed is attested to. That Jesus existed is real. That the stories in the Gospels are historically reliable, are evident even to a skeptic like Bart Ehrman. Now again, he's going to denounce the theological aspects of it. He's going to denounce some of it. But he accepts the reality that Jesus existed. Let's talk about the authors for a moment. We had four authors we mentioned earlier, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was a tax collector and an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. Mark was a friend of Peter. History tells us that Mark wrote down what Peter preached. 
John was a disciple of Jesus, one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Luke was a Gentile doctor and a friend of Paul. The material these individuals wrote agree on basic topic, order, and historical record. You'll find small discrepancies. You'll find some differences in ordering certain miracles or ordering certain sermons. Or you might even find different words. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, one of, one of them records, blessed are the poor, while the other one records, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? So slight difference there. But my point is, throughout these four Gospels, you find essentially the same story. They tell the same story of Jesus from four different perspectives. As I was telling my family this last night, going over my notes, I said to them, think of it like this. If I was to commission a portrait to be made of this church, not a picture, because the picture, you snap the camera, and whatever the lens sees, it reflects onto whatever medium, right, electronic, or if you're using a real camera onto the film, right? That's That's a photograph. Think of a portrait. If I commission four different portraits of this this community today, number one, it'd make you sit here a lot longer so I'd actually get finished with my sermon. Number two, right, you'd have four different perspectives. Let's say one guy got up here in the back in the choir loft and, and he painted. Let's say another guy painted from the back corner. Are they painting the same subject? Yes. Is it going to look dramatically different? Yes. And if you're like me, some of you say, yes, that guy got the better part, uh, <clears throat> the guy in the back, right? So we have four portraits of Jesus that are slightly different perspectives of Jesus, but tell the exact same story. Jesus was born, Jesus lived, Jesus had disciples, Jesus preached, Jesus did miracles, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, Jesus rose again on a Sunday morning, Jesus ascended into heaven. All four gospels agree, he's coming back. That's all historical material. What we believe as Christians is based on a real historical person. It's not a myth. I run into lots of people in my preaching and teaching who want to convince me that Jesus is a myth, that Jesus is not real, that there is no historical value. And I tell them, go check out the Book of Mormon, go check out the Quran, and you'll find documents that are not based on historical reliability. You'll find documents that were written by one man in a moment of fantasy to make himself popular. If you look at the Bible, you find 66 books written over a period of thousands of years by 40 different authors who all agree that God alone is God. 40 witnesses, ladies and gentlemen. In a court of law, if you and I have a case against each other, and I bring 40 witnesses, and they all tell essentially the same story, differing only in minor points, and you have one guy who can't get his story straight, guess who's going to win? I am. 40 authors. In the New Testament alone, we have at least six different authors. The New Testament alone. Paul writes half of our New Testament. We're going to talk about Paul in a moment. Was Paul reliable? Well, let's look for just a brief moment at Dr. Luke. Luke is among the most unique of our historians, our gospel writers. He's not an eyewitness. He doesn't even claim to be. He's not even a Jew. He's a Gentile. He writes in his his book, his first gospel, he writes Luke and Acts, by the way, and he writes in Luke, the gospel, it says this, I have uh, undertaken to write an orderly account for you, O Theophilus. So he's writing to a friend, he's investigating the reality, he's investigating the historicity of all this stuff, and he's writing an orderly, a chronological account. 
right? I've read actual Jewish scholars and Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars who say of all the gospel writers, Luke is a, is a consummate historian. He researched, he talked to eyewitnesses, he looked at documents, he went to the library, he did his research, and he wrote for us a historical account. He came to be a follower of Christ because of the testimony of other people. This is a Roman citizen, a Gentile, not a biased Jewish person looking for Messiah. So by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he comes to faith in God and faith in Christ through Jesus Christ, comes to a relationship with God, and then writes this history. Good stuff. He then posts this history for others to read. My guess is he had no idea that his book would be collected with three other accounts. It would be called something like the Bible. But Luke wrote an orderly account. By the way, archaeologists and other scientists have done research on the book of Acts, and they've taken the destinations and the locations and the, the periods of Acts. They've looked it up in other historical man manuals. They've gone and dug in the places where Luke talks about it, and guess what? They found Luke to be right every single time. The islands that, that Paul talks about in Acts, the places that Paul and Barnabas visits, all of those things have been proven by archaeological science. Next time somebody says, the Bible's myth, say then, why is the spade turning over so much biblical truth every time somebody digs in Israel? Four witnesses, four perspectives. Think of it like this. And I, I will be coming to a close soon. Hang in there. I told you it would be a rough ride, didn't I? Think of it like this. If we walk out the doors today, out this church, out here on the street, and we witness a car accident, four of us are standing there talking nonchalantly when two cars slam into each other. Each one of us will remember something about that accident. It'll be the same accident we remember, but we might not remember the same details. One person might remember the colors of the car. The, another person might remember the genders of the drivers. Somebody else might remember that one car seemed to be going awfully fast for this neighborhood right? Another person might just simply remember the loud noise and looking up and seeing that the accident happened. Are they all telling the truth? Yes. They all witnessed the exact same accident, but they're all describing different aspects of it as their perspective allows them. That's what we have in the Gospels. They emphasize different details. They give varying level of detail. Sometimes they focus on things. John focuses on things that the synoptics don't focus on. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, focus on things John doesn't focus on. But all of them get to the same ending, the passion of, Jer of Jesus. Yes, there seem to be some discrepancies. Yes, there seem to be some places where the Gospels disagree. But in general, the story is exactly the same. Now, how do we explain that these stories are exactly the same? We either have to explain it in one of four ways. All four of these guys got together and decided to write these stories and then intentionally threw in mistakes. All four of them individually decided to write and actually came up with a story that's very similar. Or each individual wrote on their own and came up with the same story. Or somebody else wrote all four and blamed it on these men. Again, looking at historical evidence, it seems unlikely that four men collaborating to write a story would include things like this, Peter's embarrassment. Get behind me, Satan, is in three of the four Gospels. The promise to Jesus that Peter would deny him is in all four. Now, if you're Peter, 
You gonna let that get published? No. Uh-uh. No, that's not, no, Mark, that's not exactly right. No, I may have had some doubts, but no, I was on Jesus' side. Remember, I was a guy who's going to die for him, right? Here's another one. All four Gospels represented at the resurrection. One set of people witnessed the resurrected Lord first. They were all female. Now, that may not be so shocking to us in this room, but in the first century, women's testimony you had to have three women to amount to one man's testimony in a court of law. Women's testimony was discredited. So a woman saying, I saw Jesus, the resurrected Lord, a typical Jewish person would go, Psh, you're a woman. What do you know? Ladies, sorry. <clears throat> I know there are still some people in our society that feel that way. <clears throat> the fact is, why would the disciples record such embarrassing facts if they were making it up? In fact, every one of these men who wrote a gospel suffered. None of them got rich. None of them had their own TV show. None of them became famous. None of them became wealthy. In fact, two of them died martyrs' deaths because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Sherman White, in his research, found that two generations is not sufficient to cause a legend to alter a solid core of historical fact. Let me put this into context for you. If we have a solid core of history, it takes more than 50 years for any legend to creep into that history, okay? So solid core, right? The Civil War, by the way, is full of, of a lot of what I call urban legends. If you read, I'm a Civil War buff, if you read about the Civil War, Virginia is full of Civil War lore. Man, you can't drive a mile without seeing a Civil War marker, right, a Revolutionary War marker. I, I love that about Virginia, by the way. But, you know, you could find all kinds of interesting things about the Civil War that didn't really happen in the Civil War. Because legend has crept into it. Now, again, I'm not saying all of our historical accounts of the Civil War are therefore wrong. I'm simply saying it's been over 50 years. And as these stories have been passed on from generation to generation, as we've written them down, in some cases, things have crept into the lore that was not historical core because it was more than 50 years. Remember that most of the gospel writers are writing either in the early 50s or early 60s. Barely 20 years after, 10 to 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. Not enough time. In fact, at the time they're writing, there's still witnesses who could come and say, Jesus never got up out of the grave. What do you mean he's going to return? He hasn't gone anywhere. Here are his bones. Why don't they say that? I'll tell you why. They're not there. I've been in the grave. My daughter and wife have been in the grave. We can testify by eyewitness testimony. He's not there. He's risen. Why didn't the Jews present his bones? They did not have them. Why didn't the Romans say, this is a horrible cult, this is a horrible superstition, let's destroy it now, bring out the body of Jesus. I'll tell you why they didn't, because they didn't have it. At Easter and at Christmas, there's always some supernatural something where somebody found the body of Jesus, right? James Cameron a few years ago found the body of Jesus in Jerusalem, which I thought was amazing. So I wrote James Cameron, I said, are you trying to tell me Jesus has returned? Because the only way you're going to find his body is if he comes back. They didn't find the bones of Jesus. They found the bones of some guy named Joshua, which was Jesus' name in Jew, Jewish. I mean, it's, yeah, there's lots of, you think there might be many Joshuas running around in the first century Palestine? Yeah, probably. 
Jesus of Nazareth, on the other hand, he's not there. He's risen. So our gospel writers, there was not enough time for legend to creep in. Well, let me close with this because I've already kept you a lot longer than I intended. But I want to close with three more witnesses. These are our external witnesses, right? The bibliographical reference evidence is this. Thousands of manuscripts within a hundred years, within even in some cases just barely a hundred years of the actual event. The people that wrote them, the internal evidence, are eyewitnesses in some cases to this material. That's your internal evidence. Now your external evidence. Paul, James, and Tacitus. Paul the Apostle left a leadership position in Judaism, PhD, teaching at the seminary in Jerusalem, to become a follower of Jesus Christ after he spent much of his life trying to kill Christians. Paul probably was trained in Jerusalem. He may well have actually met Jesus physically at some point because he was probably in Jerusalem as a child, as a young man, at the same time Jesus was preaching. Paul becomes a Christian, plants churches all over the Roman Empire, and has his head chopped off in the mid-60s by Nero, Caesar Nero, because of his faith in Jesus. What does Paul say? These things which were handed down to me, I communicate to you. That Jesus, according to the scriptures, died for our sins. That Jesus, according to the scriptures, rose again on the third day. This is what Paul communicates. Scripture. Scripture, scripture. Paul, by the way, wrote some of his letters in the mid-50s, barely 20 years after Jesus had departed this earth. Not time for legend. James, perhaps the brother of Jesus, wrote a little epistle called the Epistle of James. Wrote around AD 45. To put that in context, that's about 10 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in his letter, he mentions the return of Jesus. Why is he talking about Jesus' return if Jesus hasn't gone anywhere? Where did he hear of this return? James is reflecting historical gospel reality. But the final witness, in my opinion, is the most important, and this is where I will close. Tacitus. We already noted that Tacitus wrote the Gallic Wars. We noted that he wrote around A.D. 100 to A.D. 115, so we're talking 60-something years after Jesus he wrote about events in the life of Roman Caesar Nero. Nero was a, a crazy man. He ruled from AD 54 to 68, roughly during the time that the church was growing and spreading all over the Roman Empire. He persecuted Christians. Nero um, wanted to build an amphitheater, uh, a, a racetrack in his own honor, but there were buildings there. Curiously enough, a fire broke out in that same area in Rome, burnt roughly three-fourths of Rome as a result. And then a rumor got started that Nero was fiddling, he was rejoicing, while Rome burnt. So everybody in Rome began to accuse Nero of starting the fire. This is what Tacitus says. Consequently, to get rid of that report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. A most mischievous superstition, checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, but even in Rome. Tacitus, writing in the second century, acknowledges that Christianity had spread even to Rome, acknowledges Jesus is a historical person who died under Pontius Pilate, by the way, mentioned in all four Gospels. 
and tells us that a superstition about this person, not a theology, not a philosophy, not a story, a superstition. What was that superstition? Suetonius gives us some illustration. Sorry, Pliny the Younger gives us some illustration. Pliny the Younger tells us that the Christians worshiped Jesus as God. And they would rise early on Sunday mornings. And they'd make vows in his name. And they would live their lives according to his teaching. What brought people to Christ was not philosophy, not theology. It was the resurrection. It wasn't Jesus' teaching that attracted people. It was his death and his resurrection. His claims to be the son of God and his getting up out of the tomb. This is a superstition that the Romans resisted. The existence of Christianity in Rome less than two decades after Jesus' life and ministry support the historical perspective of the Gospels. Ladies and gentlemen, after much ado, I declare the Gospels are reliable history. Now, what will we do with this information? We need to close. Well, if what I've shared is true, and if the Gospels are indeed historically reliable documents, then everything made Everything stated in them is also historical, and the claims made about Jesus and by Jesus are also historical and reliable. We can't ignore them. The gospel speak of Jesus forgiving sins, healing the sick, raising the dead. In fact, they speak of Jesus himself dying on the cross for our sins and raising from the dead. He's either a liar or he's God, but he can't be both. Today, if you do not know the historically reliable truth about Jesus, this is your moment. No greater opportunity to come to faith in Christ than at Advent, when Jesus first came as a babe to lay down his life for us. In a few minutes, we're going to have a a song of invitation, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this word. I realize this was not a typical sermon, so I realize that your response may be very personal. That's fine. But I do want you to respond. I want you to respond with this. Think in these terms. If the gospel is true, if the four gospels are true, what does Jesus ask of me? And what should I do today to respond in obedience? If this is accurate, it's incumbent upon you to act like it. If you don't, there's a word in this book for that. Disobedience. Sin. And the author author of Hebrews tells us that when we willfully sin, it's like crucifying Jesus all over again. So now I've brought the facts to your mind. A few minutes, someone's going to come up and lead us in song. I'm going to be down here. I'll be happy to pray with you. But I want to close with this idea. What will you do? Will you embrace this historically reliable person? Or will you walk out of here today thinking, well, that was the longest sermon I've ever heard, and I really don't want to hear another one? That's fine. But realize, you can't deny the truth of what has been said here today. And if you ignore that truth, you are responsible. Let's pray. Father, your word is sharp. It does pierce And Lord, it is true. It's the the truest truth we're ever going to hear. Lord, I do pray that you would help us respond in a godly fashion, that you would give us your spirit, 
that our response would reflect well on he who died for us. Lord, I pray that if there's those here today who need to know Jesus, that this would be their day of birth, that they would come to know him as their Lord, as their Savior, that they would know him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, if there are people here that need encouragement and need a touch from you, today, Lord, I pray the truth of your word, the Jesus who loved the outcast, the Jesus who loved the downcast, the Jesus who healed the sick, who hung out with the poor, who hung out with people nobody else wanted to hang out with, may they meet that Jesus today and walk out of this building saying, what a friend I have in Jesus.